0: So as you can see on the screen, the passage for today is Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 to 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, "She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, "No, but you did laugh." Uh,
1: I do hope that uh, some of you might choose to come to annual conference. I'm hoping you might might come along. Um, I have been. I worked out this is my 20th annual conference that I'm going to this year. I went to six as a student. Uh, I went to three as a Howie. Um, I had to sort of do extra time as a Howie because I was a slow learner. So I did three as a Howie, and then uh, I've this will be my 11th as a senior staff worker. In fact, last year being my 10th year at annual conference as senior staff worker, some of the staff got me a special scarf to mark sort of 10 years of annual conference as a senior staff worker, and they listed all the different annual conferences I've been at. So in order to try to encourage you to go to annual conference, I'm going to wear my scarf, my Ancon scarf, so that you can keep going subliminally. Oh, I should go to annual conference. I don't know why. I should go. You should go, because annual conference is awesome. Um... I mean, it is perishingly cold at Maroo, this campsite we go It is freezing. Like, you've got to bring lots of clothes. And the food, frankly, is a bit yeah. But, but the time together in God's Word is fantastic. It really is. I speak to lots of graduates who've left Sydney Uni and left the EU. And one of the things they almost always say to me is, Oh, I've just, I sort of, I realise now how precious annual conference was to be able to spend a week together with God's people digging into his word. Like now that I'm a worker and I've only got a few weeks holiday, I just, I just don't have those sort of opportunities like I had when I was a student. So please listen to your future self. And make sure you take hold of this opportunity. It really is a great week. And if, like me, the first—I still remember the first time I went—I remember sitting in an EU public meeting like this at the end of semester, thinking, "Oh, I don't know, should I go? I didn't know—I didn't know anyone else who was going—and I just said, "Oh, it's going to feel awkward." And then uh, someone else said to me, "Oh, are you going to go to the conference?" I said, "Oh, I don't know. What are you going to do?" And this person said, "Oh, I think I'll go." And I thought, oh, well, if they're going to go, then, okay, I'll go. Like I was on the the edge of whether going or not. So if that's you, I have a solution for you. If you're thinking, who's going to be my friend? Who's going to talk to me? I will talk to you. I will talk to you. Just come and find me. Sit down with me. Because one of the bizarre things is because I give some of the talks at annual conference, People don't want to speak to me like I'm, so I'm just sort of walking around, you know, no friends. So just come and, sp- I don't care anymore because I'm old, but you just come, come and speak with me and I, I, will. we will have breakfast or lunch together. It'll be lovely. It'll be great. Anyway, I'll be your friend, okay? So you've got no excuses not to come. It's really an awesome week. Here's my question for you today as we turn to God's word. My question is what do you believe in? What do you believe in? Apart from giving me a religious answer, apart from saying oh, I believe in God or I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm assuming you believe in other stuff too, right? What do you believe in? Tell me what you believe in. Call it out. What do you believe in? Sorry? The sun. You believe in the sun. <laughs> You believe there is a sun? You be- ah, no, okay. I believe that the sun will rise tomorrow, all things being equal. Yeah. You believe in your friends? Hmm. What else do you believe in? I have no idea what that is. But it sounds interesting. Right, okay. What else do you believe in? You believe in climate change? What else do you believe we're getting somewhere now? I mean no disrespect to the other things What else do you believe in? Human equality. Okay, human equality. My follow-up question, and I'm sure there's many other things you believe in, my follow-up question is, what do your beliefs cost you? See, if you believe in democracy, what it costs you is an eight-week federal election campaign. (laughs) That's what it costs you, right? If you believe in universal health care through the Medicare system, it's a good thing, then what that costs you is paying the Medicare levy. If you believe in education should be subsidised for those at tertiary institutions, then what that costs you is paying taxes for the rest of your life. Your beliefs will cost you things. True beliefs cost you things. Sometimes we say, oh, I believe in something and it costs us nothing and it's worth asking the question whether we really then believe it. You believe in anthropocentric climate change, that human beings are warming the planet and you believe that's not a good thing? You believe that, do you? Does that belief cost you anything? How much do you really believe it then? Real beliefs will cost you. The reason I'm raising this is the particular story that we're going to look at today from the book of Genesis about a particular guy named Abraham. His belief in the one true living God costs him. And I think the reason that the one true living God has given us this account of this interaction that he has with Abraham is so that we can be prompted to think about what will it cost me if I'm going to believe in the one true living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to explore a little bit together today. Now, where we're jumping into the book of Genesis, I've shown you this before, so you probably remember, that how the book of Genesis fits together. It's a series of 12 sections. There's the opening section in chapter 1 of the the, uh, creation of the heavens and the earth, and then the rest of the sections all have this heading, these are the generations of X, Y, Z. Uh, We're jumping into, I think it's the 7th section, it's the, these are the generations of Terah. He was the father of Abraham and it, uh, it focuses on Abraham rather than Terah. But uh, it's quite a long section and we have spent two weeks, last week and this week, looking at some of the things out of this section. You might remember last week that I said it starts with the Lord, the one true living God, making a promise to Abraham, a promise that he would be taken to a land, a promise that Abraham would become a great nation. And the promise that the lord would give him a great name such that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him that was the promise that l- launches really this whole section of the book of genesis the stories about abraham the rest of this section from genesis 12 through to 25 is really about the one true living god demonstrating his commitment to that promise that he's already made by clarifying the promise confirming the promise and protecting the promise against various sorts of threats Where do you get by the very end of this section? How far have the promises been fulfilled? The answer is not very far, actually. By the time you get to the very end of the section, Abraham has the rights to one particular well and he has owns one field in which he buries his wife Sarah and in which ultimately he is buried. That's it. In terms of a land, that's all he's got, the rights to one well and one field. What about in terms of becoming a great nation? Well, by the end of this whole section, he's had a son Isaac, who manages to find a wife Rebecca, and they've had no, but they've had no kids yet. In fact, as you'll read on, it turns out that Rebecca is barren, not able to have kids initially. So you know those promises of becoming a great nation—I mean, I guess they've begun, but they've not really been been fulfilled very much, have they? So by the end, I guess you could really just say Abraham has a toehold in the land and maybe the potential for a great nation of descendants. That's as far as we get. But the story really in this whole section about Abram is it's really about the one true living God who makes the promise rather than about Abraham. And it's through through his interactions with Abraham that the Lord reveals his character and he reveals his purposes for the world. That's really the main feature of this whole section, indeed the whole of the book of Genesis. However, Abraham is held up for us in light of the rest of the Bible. He's held up for us as an example of how to respond to this one true living God who makes promises. The way you respond is by trust, by faith. Abraham's held up as a bit of an example. And we're going to see that today as we see what it costs Abraham to believe in this God. Now, we're going to do it by looking in particular... At Genesis chapter 22, which is not the chapter we just had read out, uh, because in order to understand Genesis 22, you've got to get a bit of the backstory. That starts with the Lord's promise in Genesis chapter 18, which was the section we just had read out, which is where the Lord makes a promise to Abraham and says, "In within a year, your wife Sarah will have had a kid." and you're to name them Isaac. We know from chapter 17 that he's to give his son the name Isaac. But we're told in Genesis 18, within the year. Now, that's a pretty remarkable promise. Abraham was 100 years old at this point. Sarah is 90, and as the version that we had read out said, um, she was, what was the phrase it used? Beyond the, she was no longer with the way of women or something like that, meaning she's been through menopause, right? So she's no longer able to fall pregnant. So that the Lord would make this promise is astounding. Going to have a kid now, at this point in life? That's incredible. So that's the Lord's promise. Now, if you've got your Bible there, let's flick forward and see what happens. Jump to Genesis chapter 21, which is the next step. Genesis chapter 21. Let me read out a few verses here. From verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised sarah became pregnant and bore a son to abraham in his old age at the very time god had promised him abraham gave him the name isaac to the son sarah bore him when his son isaac was eight days old abraham circumcised him as god commanded him abraham was a hundred years old when his son isaac was born to him sarah said God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. uh, Isaac's name means literally he laughs. That's what they called their kid. He laughs. That's what the Lord told them to call their kid. He laughs because when Abraham was told about it, he laughed. When Sarah was told about it, she laughed. Everyone laughed. So we call the kid, he laughs. And verse 7. And Sarah added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's a bit of a dumb question. I mean, she asked it, I guess, semi-rhetorically, right? Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who did say it to Sarah? The Lord did. The Lord had said this would happen. It was the Lord's promise. And the Lord has fulfilled his promise. It's marvellous. It's incredible. She was 90 years old. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it amazing? And then we have a problem. Genesis chapter 22. Problem. Got your Bible there? We're going to work. read through this account of Genesis chapter 22. I'll make some a few comments as we go along. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about take your son your only son whom you love and offer him as a sacrifice that's horrific isn't it isn't that an absolutely horrific thing for god to ask of abraham now we know here that this is a test we're told that in verse one there That this is some sort of test that God is giving Abraham. But what sort of test would be as horrific as this? Surely the one true living God won't let Abraham go through and do this, would he? What's Abraham going to do? How would you respond? Well, let's look at what Abraham does. Verse 3. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This journey towards the mountain, isn't it just filled with dread? You're just marching along day by day. And then they leave the servants and the donkey and they go on together and you're just thinking, please, no. And then Isaac asked the question, where's the lamb? And you can sort of hear abraham's mind taking over right what do i say the lord will provide the lamb what does he mean there i think he's saying the lord the lord has provided the lamb isaac you are the lamb you are the one that i have been told to sacrifice you're the one the lord's provided It's horrific, isn't it? What do we make of this? Sacrifice your only son whom you love? What's going on here? The very idea of a human sacrifice is rightly abhorrent to us. The very idea that you would sacrifice somebody to a God, it's abhorrent to us. And I say rightly so because... As you read on in the Christian Bible, it becomes very clear, very clear, that the one true living God himself abhors human sacrifice. He detests the idea that humans would sacrifice their children. If you go and look up, say, Leviticus chapter 20... Uh, verses one to five you can see there that the same god the one true living god is very clear to his people that they are not to sacrifice their children to, to pagan gods that that's a horrific thing now as you and i read this story we have the benefit of the rest of the scriptures so we can read this story in the light of later revelation we read it in the light of leviticus chapter 20 and we go Hang on, we know the one true living God does not let his people sacrifice their kids. We know that that's his character. So when we come back and read this, we go, God tested Abraham. We go, oh, so we know, we know that the one true living God is not going to let Abraham go through with this. Because we've got the later revelation. We know that it's just a test that he won't let him go through with it. And in fact, the very first readers of this story, given that it was probably put together in the times of Moses, and Moses was one of the ones who helped put together Leviticus chapter 20 as well, the very first readers of this story would also have known that this was just a test, that God, the one true living God, would not let Abraham go through with this. We know those things. They knew those things, but Abraham did not. It might not have occurred to you that you know more about the one true living God than Abraham did. You're thinking, but Abraham had these amazing promises made to him, etc. Yeah, but you're on the other side of God's ultimate revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know far more about God's character and purposes than Abraham did. Abraham was much more in the dark. He knew what the Lord had revealed to him, but it was nowhere near as much as you or I know, or even people in the days of Moses. So for Abraham, it was a real test. He didn't know why the Lord was asking him to do this thing, he didn't know that it was against the very character of God himself to let someone go through with this. He didn't know. So it was a test for him. And here he is moving forward in obedience so let's then pick up the story again this time verse 9 when they reached the place god had told him about abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it he bound his son isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. This is the sort of, you know, stop where you are, put down the weapon, step back slowly, step back slowly. Do not do anything to harm this child. Don't do anything. I mean, the relief surely is palpable at that point, going, yes, thank you, Lord. Don't do anything to harm this child. And then you can see the conclusion, jumping in halfway through verse 12. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. It seems that Abraham somehow has passed the test. He's passed the test. The test was whether he was going to let his affection for Isaac, his only son who he loved, was he going to put that above obeying God who'd provided his son? Who was going to be utmost in his affections? Isaac or the Lord who'd blessed him with Isaac? Who was going to be utmost in his affections? That was the test, it seems. The Lord, I guess, if you like, pointed to the thing in Isaac's, in Abraham's life that he held on to most dearly. The object of his highest affection, if you like. And the Lord said to Abraham, what about him? What about that? If I asked you to give that up, would you do that? And somehow Abraham under the strength that God provided passed the test well then you can see what happens next verse 13 Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide it's a pretty good name I mean that's what Abraham said along the way when Isaac had asked him where's the lamb going to come from he said the Lord will provide they got up there Bit of dicey moment up on top of the mountain there. But hey, the Lord provided a ram. When Isaac says, you can imagine to Abraham, so dad, what do we call this place? Let's call it the Lord will provide because that's been my experience at this place, right? The Lord will provide. Let's call it that. And in fact, you can see, and to this day, it said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord then called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son i will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me that is what the lord does is he reiterates the promise that he made the promise he made back in chapter 12 that he confirmed by covenant in chapter 15, that he gave, of which he gave the sign of circumcision in chapter 17. He confirms that covenant and he in the, uh, just adds to it this time that he, he sort of swears an oath that I will certainly do this by my own name. He adds a sort of an oath as another way of confirming that he will indeed see this promise through. And then verse 19, the conclusion, Abraham returned to his servants. They set off together for Bathsheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba and probably needed to have a long lie down after that whole incident. What do we make of this account in the time we've got left? What do we make of this? Three things. First of all, this is a horrifying test. A horrifying test. As I said before, the Lord, we know from the rest of the Christian scriptures, the Lord abhors it. The very idea of his people sacrificing their children. It should never be countenanced. It should never be entertained, even for a moment. In fact, if you look up Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 35, the Lord talks in that chapter about how within his own people, the people of Israel and Judah, some of his people were sacrificing their children to the god Molech. And the Lord says there, he says, it did not even enter my mind that my people would ever do such a thing. It has never even occurred to the Lord that that his people would do such things. So it's right that we abhor such an idea that we sacrifice our children because the Lord abhors it. The Lord has never countenanced as something to actually be done by his people. And God had no intention, therefore, of letting Abraham carry through with it. Abraham, admittedly, didn't know any better because he wasn't blessed with the sort of understanding of God that we've been blessed with through the later revelation. But we know that God would never have let him go through with such an action. So that's the first thing. It is a horrifying test. But you might then ask, well, hang on, though. If the Lord abhors sort of the sacrifice of children, if you understand the Christian message about the Lord Jesus, what do you make of the death of jesus then doesn't doesn't in some way god do the very thing that he tells abraham not to do in the end does god sacrifice children does he sacrifice his child now you've got to be careful here i think there's two things to draw your attention to so that you don't get these confused the first thing to say is who is the person jesus who dies on the cross We know from the New Testament that Jesus is God the Eternal Son Himself, become a human being. This is actually God taking, becoming the sacrifice Himself, not imposing it on some third party, not imposing it on someone else. He takes it Himself. Moreover, Jesus Himself emphasizes that He does it voluntarily, there's not something that is forced upon Him like seemed to be happening to isaac so jesus says in john 10 he says the reason my father loves me is that i lay down my life only to take it up again no one takes it from me but i lay it down of my own accord i have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again this command i received from my father so part of the answer is who jesus is as he is both fully god become a human being. Secondly, it's because he does it voluntarily. No one imposes this upon him. And thirdly, he does it knowing that, that he's going to be raised again. He knows, he says there, I lay it down, but I also have authority to take it up again. So I don't think it fi- quite fits the same sort of categories as what we're talking back in Genesis chapter 22. So that's thinking a little bit about yes, this is a bit of a horrifying test, but secondly, it's a confronting test. As I suggested before, I think what the Lord God was doing here was putting his finger, touching the thing that we value the most. And it's like the one true living God was saying to Abraham, does your faith, does your commitment to me extend even to here? The things that are most valuable in your life. Are you willing to give up even this to worship me? And Abraham is not the last person in the Bible tested in this way. In fact, when God the Son does come amongst us as the man Jesus Christ, he repeatedly puts out challenges that similarly test people by putting his finger, a divine finger, on people's beliefs and saying, what will this belief, if it's going to be genuine, what's it going to cost you? Are you willing to pay the price? So if you've got your Bible there, could you flick with me to Luke 18? Luke 18, and we'll see one such interaction. Jesus has this with a ruler, we're told, a ruler who turns out is very rich. Luke 18, I'm looking at verses 18 to 24. The uh, This rich ruler comes to Jesus, says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He says, I've kept all the commandments. Then we jump in at verse 22, Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. See that Jesus is doing the same sort of thing that the Lord does to Abraham. He puts his finger on the thing that this guy held most dear, the thing to which he clings most tightly. For him it was his wealth, his great wealth. And Jesus says, would you give that up? Sell all your possessions. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. Hey, you'll have treasure in heaven. There's an incentive for you. But the guy couldn't do it. His belief in Jesus could not extend that far. He failed the test. It's not the only person that Jesus points to like that. If you flick back a few chapters to Luke chapter 9, you'll see it's not always just about about money. Sometimes it's about family. Luke chapter 9 verse 59, Jesus said to another man, follow me but the man replied lord first let me go and bury my father jesus said to him let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of god still another said i will follow you lord but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family jesus replied no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of god that is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, your, you want to follow me? Your loyalty to me has to trump even your biological family. Are you, is your faith genuine? Are you going to put such trust in me that when push comes to shove, your loyalty to me will trump your loyalty to your family? That's what genuine faith looks like. Um, I don't know if you remember this game, when I was a kid this game was around, it's called Operation. You do know this game? You have sort of a little metal sort of tweezer thing and there's this poor bloke there who's looking pretty worried, fair enough, and he's got all bits and pieces inside the body that on the board game you have to then get the tweezers and pull out the pieces without touching the sides Um, because if you touch the side of the hole that the piece comes out of, the alarm goes off and, you know, something. It's apparently based on real-life operations. That's what this is what it's like. No, I don't know about that. But um, I feel like what the one true living God is doing with Abraham and what you see Jesus doing with these people, it's a bit like the game of operation, isn't it? The one true living God sticks his finger in and points to something that you hold most dear and says, You want to believe in me? You want to follow me? Then how about this? It's going to mean that you might have to give up this. And the question is, will you let the Lord take that? Or will you set your alarms off? No, no, no. Anything, Lord. I mean, I want to follow you, Jesus, but just don't touch that. I don't know what it is for you, Whether it's family expectations. You just don't want to disappoint your parents. Maybe it's personal aspirations. Yeah, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, but I really, really, I, I really want, you know, a successful career. I really want to travel. I really just want to enjoy my life. Like, I know I give up everything for Jesus, but I just want to hold on to comfort, pleasure, career, money. I don't want to give up that relationship. I I know I shouldn't be sleeping with that person, but I don't want to give that up. Maybe it's you don't want to give up a a bitterness, a grudge against someone who's genuinely done you wrong. And yes, I know, Lord, I should forgive them, but I don't want to forgive them. I want to hold on to that and bear that grudge. Maybe it's your political beliefs that you're not willing to sacrifice to the Lord. Maybe it's your philosophical commitments so that you're not willing to sacrifice to the Lord. Maybe it's your views on the economy or your views on relationships and sexuality. What, what are you not willing to give up, to sacrifice, to submit to the Lord? Ultimately, you see, it's about whether you're going to let the one true living God be your God. Is Jesus really going to be Lord of every part of your life? Because like Abraham, a right response to the one true living God, a right response is faith, trust, obedience, even when it costs us a lot, even when it costs us everything. Now, there's a lot more that could be said, which I don't have time to do, there's a you know, there's a whole fact that the New Testament holds up Abraham's example of faith from this test as something that should be pondered by us as followers of the Lord Jesus. In particular, you might chase up these two passages, you could just jot it down. Hebrews chapter eleven, verses seventeen to nineteen communicates that in reflecting on Abraham and his interaction with Isaac, that genuine faith trusts God's promises. Even in the dark, even when you can't see how God's going to keep his promise. God had promised that that Abraham would have descendants through Isaac, but then he calls him to kill Isaac. So how's God going to keep the promise? But Abraham moved forward, even in the dark, to trust that promise. That's what genuine faith looks like. And James chapter 2, verses 20 to 24, makes a point from this same episode that genuine faith always shows itself in action. Or as the reformers put it, it's faith alone that saves, but the faith, the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by action, by deeds that flow out of that genuine faith, which you can see in the way Abraham trusted the Lord. I need to end there, but I do hope that as you move forward, trusting in the Lord Jesus, that your faith will be shown to be genuine That no matter what it costs, you will trust the God who makes promises to you in the Lord Jesus Christ.